Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Is it right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Let's go again. Perfect. COVID-19 is the biggest pandemic facing humanity in more than a century. One year in, and we are still looking for the light at the end of the tunnel. Models and data have played a very crucial role in this response. In this special podcast series, we'll be talking to our fellow researchers from NSAC at the Biocomplexity Institute, University of Virginia. The team has been tirelessly supporting COVID-19 response in the U.S. at the local, state, and federal levels. And in this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Zhongzhou Chen about the different computational models that are being used in this process. Hi, I'm Srini Venkatramanan. And I'm Erin Raymond. Let's go talk to the COVID chaser. COVID chaser. COVID chaser. COVID chaser. COVID chaser. So, hi, uh, I am uh, Zhang Zhuo Chen. I've been uh, working in this group since uh, 2005, so almost like uh, 16 years now. And um, I am a, a computer scientist uh, uh, by training. And I have some background in economics too. So here I am uh, mostly working on uh, projects or problems related to epidemiology, infectious disease uh, modeling, uh, computational models, uh, designing and uh, simulations, doing studies for different uh, projects. Yes, and the computational modeling is what we want to focus on today from your varied background. And I know that um, you and Srini are both involved in that. So, um, so Chen, how did you sort of get started? What, what were the first things that you did with the COVID project? The first thing I did, I guess that's, um, I remember that was setting up uh, IP hyper simulations and then uh, we had uh, to wait a little bit until our uh, populations and uh, our networks um, ready. So, so during that time, I remember that we were working on some uh, input-output uh, model for the economic analysis. So EpiHyper, for the people who are listening, so EpiHyper is the agent-based uh, modeling platform that we have, right? Uh, so that's right. We, uh, that's right. You can. Tell us some more about that. Yeah, so it was uh, actually not the first uh, simulation model that we built. Okay. It was based on uh, our long history of uh, uh, work on synthetic populations, synthetic network, uh, agent-based modeling, um, high-performance computing on epidemiology. Uh, so, so in the last uh, like two decades or so, uh, we have been trying to construct and generate synthetic populations for the U.S. and uh, uh, for the for the other countries also, and try to upgrade that. And the recent version, uh, we had that ready. I think uh, in early 2020, and uh, and then it was actually improved later on a little bit, and uh, and then the agent-based simulations, um, they all based on population because they need to uh, compute people to people interactions. And then uh, we used to have um, some uh, different versions of that. And then uh, Hyper is uh, a version which is 
uh, I think it's a, it's an upgraded version, uh, which is more capable and more detailed and can model very complicated disease models and the behaviors. Yeah, if I recall correctly, I think like we're back in April 2020, uh, one of the early models that we were trying out for COVID-19 was the cruise ship model. We were trying to gather different data sets for the cruise ship, uh, trying to set up an agent-based representation of it. That's right. So, so yeah, that, that is a small scale population, but uh, we had very detailed data, public data from, uh, from the internet. And we know that how many people and then who, uh, how many guests and how many staff members and then uh, what are the rooms and so on. So, so we can construct that and then we can, uh, and we know a little bit of uh, the epidemic uh, data on, on, the, on the cruise ship, uh, like how many people on each day are in, uh, diagnosed and so on, confirmed cases. So we use that data and try to uh, use EpiHyper to, uh, to run simulations on that. Um, but we didn't really complete that. Um, yeah. yeah, we got overwhelmed with other things. A little sidetracked. Right, yeah. So later on, we were involved in the response for New York City, I, I remember. And that was very intense uh, at that time, in March, I think. Yeah, so that type of modeling of the cruise ship, I could see how that could also be applied to other sort of containerized populations like prisons. I know that COVID has really been a problem in prisons. And so I would I would imagine that a model from the cruise ship, could you sort of extrapolate that onto other containers? Yeah, I think I think so. So I, I think the same uh, methodology for constructing the uh, population and the network, and then the same uh, uh, approach for uh, experimenting uh, the scenarios, different scenarios. Uh, it pretty much work either a cruise ship or uh, like a prison or some other campuses like a university campus. So we did do some study for uh, university campuses like a UVA campus. And, and also we did uh, do study for some other like a office building. So, so yeah, the same approach, but with some data uh, updates, right? Of course, uh, different people, they behave differently and interact differently in different places. Uh, that needs to be taken into account. Right. So Srini, what was your first sort of foray into the computational models? Was it working with Chen on EpiHyper stuff? Yeah, I mean, to trace back my uh, first time joining the group, I've been with the group for like close to six years. I joined as a postdoc and one of my first assignments was working with Chen. This was uh, using Ebola models that I developed uh, using EpiFast, which was a, a previous instance. And uh, I, I was working with Chen and trying to calibrate pretty much similar challenges of like you have some data and then you have a very complex model and trying to make this model uh, reflect what's happening in the ground truth that that's how my postdoc pretty much got started that was my first intro to even epidemiology so uh, one thing that we realized uh, and again uh, tracing to the current uh, kind of modeling that i'm doing once these models become really complex some of these studies become very difficult to execute if you're doing something like optimization for national scale uh, and so there was one requirement. We were trying to build models for understanding vaccine distribution, but for seasonal influenza uh, and trying to optimize spatial allocations. And we realized we could run 50 states models, but then trying to uh, test different policies becomes very difficult. So we built out a much lighter weight one. A lot of folks helped in uh, 
formalizing that question because here what we decided was instead of representing individuals we actually represent uh, groups of people or populations a meta population system so instead of just uh, individuals interacting you have say counties interacting with counties and you try to understand how people move between them and use that to capture disease spread at a much more uh, like higher level uh, and we've been refining that simulation engine is one of the simpler studies or in data poor environments and uh, that's called patsum and we're testing out those things and so when emergence of covid started happening like in china and like we had the first few cases in us uh, we were tasked by our sponsors to start doing some of the scenarios and uh, so uh, the first things that we did was like we had a county level model already built for that national influencer study so we just repurposed it and started clearing in like okay uh, what if there is a higher transmissibility or a lower one see different trajectories out and that's how i got started that would be like february and then slowly that started morphing into uh, surveillance data integrated and we started in engaging with vdh and so on so that's been a parallel track and it's been very uh, interesting and very useful for exchanging information between both these models and that's something that we have learned over the process we have evolved in the sense that instead of thinking of these as two very different frameworks there are some things that both of them are sharing because there's one ground reality you are trying to represent and sometimes it might be easier to do in one but not the other and uh, usually like keep going back and forth on okay this this seems some, like something that we can handle here uh, but say some of these higher resolution ones are very useful for uh, capturing exactly what you want uh, we we've, we've been able to capture that uh, spectrum of complexity also i would say so the covid response those have been the main drivers of uh, what we would call again these fall under this class of mechanistic models because both of them try to represent the mechanism of disease spread so how people get infected and recover and right so okay so chen going from what shrini has said i i am not a scientist right so what i <laughs> know so you have to talk to, like what would, how you would explain this to a third grader so um what would you say are the like the real differences between like EpiHyper and PatchSim? So, so based on what Srini is talking about, because those are the two really foundational computational models that we use. Is that yeah? So my view of this is that uh, uh, it, it, those two models there are two instances on the full spectrum from the most uh, coarse model, which uh, just uh, the very basic uh, uh, ODEs, the, the uh, system of uh, uh, ordinary differential equations to okay. uh, individualized uh, model where uh, it's uh, everyone, every uh, uh, behave, behavior, every um, uh, interaction is uh, uh, modeled out. And then uh, API Hyper is more to uh, the uh, detailed uh, extreme of this spectrum. And uh, you can think of that as uh, uh, if you take a, a meta population model and just try to make uh, the uh, patch smaller and smaller. If uh, if you are trying to look at every single individual as a patch, then you will have an individual based model already. Right? So so it depends on. So both are uh, very useful. Um, probably in. Uh, most uh, scenarios. Uh, so, so in, in those cases, they are validating each other. They probably take the uh, same input and give a consistent output. 
necessarily. And then, uh, but in some uh, scenarios, one is uh, more useful than the other, I think. Uh, especially if uh, you don't really have a lot of data. Okay. And you need to set like uh, hundreds or thousands of parameters in the in the API hyper, and you, you don't really have good data for that, then maybe it's not the worthwhile to uh, to use so complicated models. But if you really uh, need to look at individual level uh, uh, details, like, uh, for example, uh, recently we're doing this contact tracing. And contact tracing necessarily means that you identify individuals and try to trace the contacts of those individuals. And if you ignore the individuals, then uh, it's difficult to do contact tracing uh, in, a, in, a, in a reasonable way. Uh, I'm not right. saying it's impossible to do, it's still possible, <laughs> but naturally you would like to use individual-based models. So there, the API Hyper becomes more useful. So different models, they, they are uh, useful probably uh, in uh, different scenarios. Uh, but I think uh, um, so far, I, I think uh, we, in our team, we have been uh, good uh, in terms of uh, applying different models for answering different questions. Right. Uh, so I know that there's a, a, a team specifically working on patch team uh, based uh, modeling and uh, forecasting. And, uh, and I, I would say the amount of uh, uh, iterations and uh, optimizations is so much that it's impossible. I, I, I guess uh, it'd be very, very difficult to do the same thing for uh, using API Hyper for, for that purpose. But uh, also we have another uh, like a sub team work on uh, questions specifically, uh, Epi Hyper would be good for those questions. And uh, uh, so those two work in parallel. Yeah, I would say like uh, we've tried to push both these models to the extreme because like in terms of, even if you think paths and models are very light, we try to push it to the limit where we start clogging up the clusters. And I think uh, we, we try to do that with the Epi Hyper also. So right. I think if you let computational scientists uh, free in the clusters we fill it up irrespective of the model's complexity. Uh, I think, yeah, uh, one other thing I uh, wanted to bring up, I think contact tracing is a really good example and the other one is stay at home. Uh, so one thing uh, that uh, is worth pointing out is like, I think we'll talk to some folks uh, who will talk more about the synthetic populations in the right. future episodes. If you look at EpiHyper, it's not just representing individuals. The representation includes locations like schools or workplaces so, so that if you suddenly ask everyone to stay at home, you still have interactions among the people in the same household, but not across households. And this is something that's important to capture. Otherwise, you lose that particular representation. Right. That said, like, I think, yeah, all models are wrong. Some models are useful. I think that keeps resonating every time we try to build models. And as Jen said, it's, a, it's about how quickly they want the answer, how detailed they want the answer, what data do they have, and then we go to the choice of models. Right. Yeah, very complementary. Right. Uh, we used to have uh, this uh, thing called uh, uh, epistemics, and uh, actually it's been reconstructed now uh, in our collaboration with another team. Uh, but uh, what I want to say is that is actually even more detailed and more accurate than <laughs> epihyper, because epihyper, we still have some kind of approximation in the, in the competition. In terms of, for example, in terms of uh, schedule change, we, we actually uh, can represent that, but not so like 100% precisely. 
And I think, yeah, uh, the spectrum that Chen was talking about in the beginning of uh, you have this complexity on one end, like very simple differential equations and the other end individual and each individual seen as a patch. In fact, even that is not true if you actually start seeing subhuman models. Like there are people who uh, specialize in understanding how the viral load builds up inside a person. Mm -hmm. There are some clinical parameters that people estimate using much more refined uh, models. And uh, there's a there's a big push to understand how these multiple models across scales can be connected. Sometimes something that you understand about the clinical characteristics might have different consequences. Right. Like, for instance, the asymptomatic nature of COVID uh, is something that uh, you can observe in the uh, clinical side, but like you actually see it manifesting in how it spreads and it has implications for all the interventions. Right. And also the... Uh... Uh, I, I guess uh, we probably need another episode uh, to discuss this um, in more detail, but uh, uh, some notions that was developed historically from the ODE models and the more uh, coarse models, they probably are not directly applicable to more detailed models, like are not very uh, fundamental, but uh, actually we don't really have, uh, I, I don't think we have a very like a precise understanding of how that works in a, in a, a detailed model, in a network model, in an individual based model, and something else like a head, uh, herd immunity. Uh, at some point, we were actually trying to figure out and compare uh, different models of uh, different uh, uh, social in, in this uh, spectrum, like a uh, uh, meta population model or an ODE model or an um, uh, IP hyper model. Uh, what are the commonalities and what is the uh, what are the differences and try to get a better understanding of uh, when should we use which model right i think what you said chen is so important that different models can answer different questions right and that's so important to remember we can't there's not a one size fits all for any of the questions so and in fact yeah i think more, more importantly, it's about conveying the correct information because when policymakers are looking at it, uh, well, you can say like, I use this fancy cooker or it's, it's the final uh, recipe that matters. I, and I think uh, being able to educate how these models need to be used is also part of the learning experience, I think, for us. So maybe, Chen, maybe we can talk about some of the other, the non-technical parts of it. Uh, so what would you think as like some of the high points or low points? uh through this like last year's journey like yeah so so last year uh so um so last year was like a tiring year right but also uh i i think uh, but also we are we are in some sense motivated because uh tiring because uh, we have been trying to uh respond to uh different uh, uh requests and the different situations uh again and again Right. So, so uh, this is really uh, involve a lot of work, right? So, but uh, also uh, we we were mo motivated because uh, it seems that uh, our work is uh, really important and uh, uh, it's responding to the real scenario affecting uh, real people in real time, probably potentially, mm, right? Right. So sometimes it's uh, it's uh, it's even directly uh, impact uh, uh, folks around us. Uh, in the Commonwealth and uh, probably in other places too. So it's in some sense um, uh, important and uh, feeling that the work is uh, 
useful is uh, motivating and sure. uh, uh, high point. I think uh, happens when <laughs> naturally. I I think that happens when we see that the uh, the, the epic curve goes down. <laughs> uh, but then if it goes back up, then we were worried, and then that's the low point. I guess it's completely opposite of the epic curve. I so guess. Goes low, we go high. <laughs> uh, yeah, in the summer time, uh, I, I think uh, at that time situation seems to be better. And uh, I, I remember phase one, phase two, phase three reopening all those things. Definitely, it it was like uh, encouraging at that time. What I can remember the most stressful uh, uh, time was last uh, uh, late March when we were trying to uh, help the New York City. Uh, to uh, uh, handle the situation at that time. And uh, I, I guess everyone was worried, at that, very worried at that time. So, so, so I guess that's the low point. Yeah, I think one, one thing that we've learned is uh, trying to figure out how to use, we all grew up like trying to learn like some, some of these complex uh, math or like the computer science and everything. And uh, so to see that being actually useful uh, in, in even understanding the situation so no one can predict the future exactly because these are humans and real lives but uh, just helping understand the situation better and uh, being able to guide decisions based on evidence i think that that's what has kept us going for the past year and our group is definitely not alone there's so many scientists and uh, even policymakers analysts data scientists everyone pitching in together so i think uh, together we have learned a lot uh, we've shared a lot of wisdom and also tried to counter misinformation to some extent. I think, I don't know how successful we have been, but I would say it, there's a lot to reflect upon, both highs and lows. Yeah, that is a great topic for future episode. So, yeah, this is something that, how how difficult was it to switch from a team environment to working remotely? I think Chen has a very unique perspective on it because... For the others, the general context is like, our office is based in Charlottesville. And I think, Erin, you're working out of Blacksburg right now. I'm out of Blacksburg. And uh, Chen is on the northern end of the spectrum. He's in Arlington. Arlington. Yeah. So we were already mastering this. If this call had happened when we were all in session, we would have still done it over Zoom. So. Yes. Yes. Actually, I used to do this. <laughs> so do the same thing so the, the only difference is that uh, I, previously i get to i, I got to uh, uh drive to the main campus and uh, uh meet uh folks like every week or so uh so so that was good and uh, so so uh, i i think from my perspective I, I think our team was already very um set up such that uh remote working uh, right was not too difficult uh, of course it's not uh, as good as face-to-face uh, uh, -face, uh, uh, yeah. collaborating but uh, uh, like uh, the environment uh, uh, skype so um, all those uh, i am tools uh, recently teams and zoom meetings uh, it's it was already like that even before the pandemic so it's actually very encouraging and uh, not very difficult. Uh, but of course, after the pandemic, we couldn't uh, do face-to-face -face, uh, at, at all. So, so uh, 
I don't know. I, I, I feel that it's almost like uh, not too much impact, but I still think that it would be good to have face-to-face. -face. Yes, right. for sure. I, I want to emphasize that uh, our team is really a collaborative team. So, so in, in this, uh, even for this uh, difficult year, I think uh, it's actually, I, I mean, personally, I feel very uh, encouraged from time to time. Uh, because of uh, 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 my colleagues. So for example, if I need something, I ping somebody uh, almost at any time, I can get a, a quick response about, uh, like, like a quick answer. Or, you know, if, if I call a meeting, then most likely I will. Uh, I, it's, it's not right to just call a meeting in the middle of uh, something, right? So like a Sunday afternoon call a meeting. Probably. So that's not what I wanna say is that uh, it, it seems that uh, uh, my um, colleagues, uh, here, they are actually uh, very nice and uh, very uh, be willing to uh, to do this because of uh, I, I guess it's not a, a usual year, so so uh, so people uh, know what's going on and are concerned and uh, you know something some questions and some issues needs to be resolved and discussed immediately, so people understand that. So I, I very much appreciate that every time I do this. Uh, uh, I got a quick response. I'm, I'm really, I, I was really encouraged in those uh, scenarios. And um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's an environment that you grow into. And uh, like I, I did my PhD in India where like it was a single prof with like four or five students. It's a really nice environment to learn. But then when you start expanding your horizons in terms of uh, interacting in a large project, uh, you, you start learning these skills and, and the group that you learn with those skills will stick with you all of us are looking forward to that face-to-face -face time and definitely definitely all right well thank you so much chen for joining us well, thank you it's very nice talking to you yeah we'll do this again for sure we need to dig into the models some more that's right, that's right. thanks chen thank you bye all right that's it for this episode of covid chasers Subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, go to our website, biocomplexity.virginia.edu forward slash NSSACNSAC. Or follow us on Twitter at UVA underscore NSAC. Stay safe and see you next time. On the next episode of Coke Chases. Uh, every every week or so, we see some format change and uh, we had to... We're doing analyses and things, but then we're trying to get them right into production. So sort of a farm to table sort of analogy, I guess.